Revelation chapter 3, that's it, uh, Revelation chapter 3. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 967. 967, just want to also give a shout out to our friends on the bridge and live stream, and it's been good. Um, glad that we can still have the live stream, but it's also been great to see more and more of you coming back, so that's been really exciting to, to, to see that. All right, Revelation chapter 3. In his book, uh, The Courage to Be, philosopher, psychologist, and theologian Paul Tillich made a really insightful observation. And his observation is that it was basically this. This is the, the, the essence of his book. It's by far much easier for people to believe a deception about themselves if it's psychologically easier to cope with than to face the harsh reality of truth. In other words, he'd write, and as an example, it's easier to believe that the world is out to get you, that life is unfair, than to accept the reality that you don't have the emotional maturity to navigate life's complex relationships. Or you are lazy and lack self-discipline. After all, believing that you're a martyr is somewhat heroic and preferable to admitting that you are an actual loser. As another example, it's easier to believe that people are cliquish and unfriendly than to admit that you actually struggle with your own insecurities, and you couldn't bear the thought of being rejected if you actually put yourself out there. And these are the psychological facades that Tillich says it's better to, easier to embrace those than face the hard realities. Another one, for example, is that it's easier to believe that people are just stubborn and they'll never change than to admit to the fact that you lack the love and the grace and the, the compassion to have hard conversations in a loving way. You see, Tillich made the insightful observation that we will do whatever it can to maintain a sense of uh, identity and self rather than face harsh realities. It's easier to blame others for problems than to accept them upon ourselves. It's not if we construct these psychological facades, Tillich writes, but why we do it and how often we do it and how long we actually maintain them. What people desperately need, he says, is the courage to be. Courage to be authentic is what he says in his book. Well, this morning we come to the last letter of the last church in Revelation 2 and 3, and it's as if Paul Tillich was thinking of the Laodiceans when he wrote The Courage to Be. It's the final letter, and it's a frightening letter, but it is a, also a fitting letter for our time. But like all the other letters, it is also full of hope. Even to this church that receives the harshest, harshest rebuke of all, and that's saying something. In fact, Jesus says to this church, you make me want to vomit. Yeah, I, I don't know if you have the NIV. I think the NIV translates it that way. It's a pretty harsh word. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm okay if I get people, if people are mad with me. I, I'm okay if people get upset with me. But to realize that someone wants to lose their lunch because of me, that's a whole other category, Right? That's the kind of thing you want to start creating, a psychological facade, and something's wrong with them. It can't be me. But as Tillich says, we need the courage to be. We need the, the courage to face the harsh reality. So we can do this together. We're going to begin by reading uh, this last letter to the last church. So if you have a Bible, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 3, from verses 14 to 22. This is what our Lord says. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, 
I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Three things pop out immediately from this letter. So those are the three things we're going to look at. The first one is the human drive to protect ourselves in life. Second, the ultimate tragedy of losing ourselves in protecting ourselves. And finally, the promise of becoming ourselves through the life we can have in Christ. Let's look at them one at a time, the drive to protect ourselves in this life. Now, one thing we know about the, about the city of Laodicea was that they were a very rich city. A lot of churches in antiquity maybe had one kind of industry or so, but Laodicea had three industries that brought a lot of wealth to them. The first was their garment industry. You could say that they were like they had the corner on designer clothing. You see, they had a unique breed of sheep in their area that produced a soft raven black wool that was so desired by the Roman Empire that Laodicea supplied all this type of wool for all of their hooded, their um, sleeve tunics and hooded cloaks that bought a tremendous amount of resources to the city of Laodicea. But it wasn't just their, their designer clothing that they were sought after for. Uh, Laodicea had a, they were kind of like a Mayo Clinic of some ways. They were known for their ophthalmology. Now, I know that's shocking to hear of a city in the first century being known for ophthalmology, but that's just because we don't realize how really advanced these cultures were. They had something called the Phrygian powder. And it was an eye salve that was used for a lot of uh, medical issues re regarding the eye, and it had a lot of ingredients, but the active ingredients was zinc and alum, and it was well known and well used throughout the entire Roman Empire. Archaeologists even discovered a textbook on the eye from this city in that time. Now finally, because of these two industries and their strategic location, a little northeast, I'm sorry, we're down here, so there's Laodicea, with their strategic location with Heropolis a little to the northeast and Colossae on the south, let's get a better map, there we go, there you can see it, because of their location here, Laodicea also basically controlled a lot of the commerce that went to the Central Asian Plateau. So as a result, these three industries, the garment industry, their uh, medicinal industry, and banking, made Laodicea an extremely wealthy city and as well an extremely wealthy church. You could say they had it all. They had it all except for good drinking water, apparently. Likely due to the rich mineral content of their soil that helped develop their medicinal industry, that, that was a plus, but it also made all of their drinking water undrinkable to speak of. And so, as a result, they had to get their water from their two neighboring cities. Heropolis, a little to the northeast, was famous for their hot springs. Even to this day, there are beautiful hot springs in the area. Colossae to the south was known for their fresh, pure, cold mountain drinking water. 
Laodicea, by contrast, had none of this, and so they had to build aqueducts that are still in ruins to this day, you can see, to basically have their water brought in from both of these cities. But by the time the water reached Laodicea, it was a tepid temperature at best. The way I I try to get a picture of that so you can relate is that, I'm not sure, some of you my age, how many of you remember drinking out of garden hoses when you were a kid? Yes, yes, that's part of one of the favorite memories of childhood, right? When, when I was growing up in Hawaii, nobody had bottled water. <laughs> I mean, I remember the first time I came to the mainland and I went to like a 7-Eleven, and I actually looked at the refrigerator, and I thought to myself, these mainlanders, they have, they're so, they have all this smarts, but they, they're buying water? Who buys water, Right. Well, you know, and drinking out of a garden hose, it, was, it, was, it would be kind of like the water at Laodicea was like, a, you know, drinking out of a garden hose on a warm summer day. Kind of has that, that warmish, coldish, rubbery taste to it, and, and then the, the city puts a little iron in it to purify it, but then it tastes a little like blood, right? So that's kind of what your water tastes like all the time. Imagine being in a city that basically that was your water. You would spit that out too, Right? Heropolis had the hot water because there are hot springs, good for bathing. Colossae had the really cold water, good for drinking. Laodicea had neither, and were good for nothing, okay? So you can imagine when Jesus says to them in verses uh, 16, were you hot or cold, you'd be good and useful. But as it is, I feel toward you the way you feel toward your water. You make me sick. This has got to be one of the harshest words that we have read to these seven churches. And there have been some harsh words to these churches. Why does Jesus say that? Well, look at verse 17. We see the answer. The first half of verse 17. I will spit you out of my mouth, verse 16. All right, that's a nice translation. You can also render the actual Greek to the vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, let me stop there just to be real clear. Jesus is not saying that rich, prosperous people makes him sick any more than he is saying that poor, struggling people make him happy, right? Do not miss this. The phrase you want to zero in on is that third phrase where they said, and I need nothing. Their money, their prosperity led them with a sense of self-sufficiency that led to a kind of pride. That they don't need anything. They have no needs. They felt that their money and their prosperity protected them, as if the most important thing in this life was avoiding hardship and poverty. You can almost imagine what they would have said in that church. Look, look, I'm good. I, I have what I want. I've got my money. I've got my hobbies. I've got my entertainments. I've got the, the new car and the, um, um, I've got the new horse in the stable, right? I've got my timeshare in Pergamum. I've got it all, job security, health, paid vacation. I've got friends who are just like me, and I even go to this, this great church in the suburbs with a really good-looking pastor. Right? You might relate to that. Don't laugh too much, okay? <laughs> you can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, but here's what you, you, you don't have an eternal perspective, and so you don't live for things larger than your own life. The borders of your life end at the horizon of your life and nothing more. See, the Laodiceans probably had the same problem that the Colossian church did, which is why Paul told them to read each other's letters, Colossians 4.16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
You see, these three cities were in relative close proximity, probably about 10 miles apart from each other, and so they, they served, kind of formed a tri-city network, and so a lot of the same things, they had a lot of the same issues. So we imagine what happened, was going on, what was going on in Laodicea, what was going on in Colossae and Heropolis. And we know from the book of Colossians that the Christians there struggled with something called syncretism, basically where you're just trying to mix things together that they shouldn't be. They took the Christianity and the gospel and things they liked about that and just try to synchronize it with their own lifestyle and their own values and the things that they had learned before. And we're coming up with a mishmash that was neither straight-out rank idolatry or Christianity, but something in between, something mutated and worse. They were trying to get a little bit of Jesus to make their lives better, but not enough of Jesus where they had to give their entire lives to him. This is probably why Paul later wrote in Colossians 3, 2-3, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Why? Verse 3. Because you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, the Colossians, probably like the the Laodiceans, and and possibly even the the church at Heropolis, were setting their minds on the things of the world. Because they didn't realize that their life was hidden with Christ in God. Hidden, that's the Greek word, kekruptai. Kekruptai basically means to cover, to place a shield, to keep safe, to protect Paul says, look, you've got to put your mind on things above, not just on the things of this world, because your life is protected by Christ. You don't have to worry about getting it all now. Christ has secured that for you. But the Laodiceans thought, no, 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 my riches, my riches will protect me. My prosperity will protect me from the things of this world. And that's what matters. Again, I just want to need to say, and the Bible teaches us, it's, it's The Bible's not against riches or prosperity. That's not the problem. But riches and prosperity always seem to make us believe something that is not true. That if we have these in abundance, then we are going to be okay. That that life is safe, that we're sufficient, we're protected, we can be satisfied as if the whole point of being a Christian were merely to get through this life. And furthermore, the focus on those things is keeping our mind on the things of this world and not things above because we've been called to a higher purpose. But apparently the Laodiceans forgot that. But Christ exposes, doesn't he, what's really going on in that church. And that is in seeking protection, safety, and security of this world in their wealth and their prosperity, the Laodiceans had effectively left Christ outside of their lives and lost themselves as Christians in the process. Look at verse 20. It's a very famous verse. Many of you know it. Behold, Jesus says, I stand in the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, you probably have heard that verse at uh, some kind of evangelistic outreach, haven't you? But here's the question. Is Jesus saying this to non-believers? He's saying this to his church. He's saying this to the church of Laodicea. In effect, in pursuing your prosperity and your wealth and your protection to keep your lives secure, you have effectively now left me out. I am completely out of your lives, and I'm knocking on the door. Think about how ironic this is if the the church had read the letters back to back. Didn't we just hear Jesus said, there ain't a door I can't open, and when I open a door, you can't shut it. But here he's saying, you've left me out. That's saying something. And they lost themselves in the process of trying to protect themselves. That's the tragedy of it. 
Keep in mind, friends, most of the early Christians, as we learned, were poor because they couldn't participate in many of the cultural practices of the day because they were so intricately tied into the idolatry. And so oftentimes, and we've learned this by reading the letters, many of the Christians simply could not participate because they didn't want to bow the knee to false gods. The Laodiceans, by contrast, had to leave Christ outside their lives to gain this wealth and prosperity. We can only imagine how they probably, the conversations they had to justify their actions, to justify their compromise. They probably were telling themselves, look, hey, we're now rich, we're prosperous, we don't need anything, so now we can help the other churches. Now let's go send money to maybe that, that Smyrna church down there, they need it. We can send out more missionaries. In other words, they didn't want to see their compromise for what it was. So they constructed a different narrative, one that they could live with. But Christ tells them what's really going on. He says, this is pitiable. This is wretched. You're poor, blind, and naked. Isn't it ironic? And isn't it helpful that Christ knows his people and their situations so well in every letter he knows where he, what he goes after. A city known for its banking, a city known for its eye cures, a city known for its garment industry. He says, but you're actually broke, blind, and butt naked. That's exactly what was going on. Because they lacked the courage to face their compromise for what it really was. And they're saying, oh, no, look at this. We're rich. We're doing okay. We don't need anything. But Christ calls them out. Friends, again, the problem of self-sufficiency and success isn't in them, in of themselves as well. That's not the problem. It's that it can lead us to self-deception. And in some cases, to believe that we actually have no needs, right? Or, or maybe more accurately to say, it leads us to misunderstand the nature of our needs. And that's what happens to Laodiceans. It's hard to believe that we would say we don't have needs, right? So we wonder what the Laodiceans were actually saying. I think it's more the fact that it led them to misunderstand the very nature of what they actually need. Uh, David Wells, he's a professor uh, of uh, theology or philosophy in Gordon-Conwell in, in Boston. And I just want to read the, I, once or twice a year I read a long quote, but this one's just too good, so I just got to read it. This probably actually can be my point here. So let me just read you what he says in his book, Losing Our Virtue, Why the Church Must Recover Its Moral Vision. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear what David Wells says. What is uppermost on Christians' minds today is not the moral fabric of life, but how to cope with their wayward personalities, self-doubt, the stages of life, marital stress, as well as calamities like job losses and the soaring cost of college tuition. These are the things that are intensely real to them that drain their psychological energy. However, while these things are not inconsequential matters, they are not burning moral issues with which the Bible is concerned. What is central to the Bible is the true and the right the beautiful, the good, sin, grace, God's wrath, and Christ's death. By contrast, what is central to so many today is simply what offers internal relief. Much of the church today, especially that part of it which is evangelical, is in captivity to this idolatry of the self. This is a form of corruption far more profound than the list of infractions we, that typically pop into our minds when we hear the word sin. 
we are trying to hold at bay the gnats of small sins while swallowing the camel of self. It is an idolatry as perverse and as spiritually debilitating as, as were many of the entanglements with pagan religions recounted for us in the Old Testament. It's almost done. That this devotion to the self seems not to be like that older devotion to a pagan god blinds the church to its own unfaithfulness. The end result, however, is no less devastating because the self is no less demanding. It is as powerful an organizing center as any god or goddess on the market. The contemporary church is whoring after this God as assiduously as the Israelites in their darker days. It is baptizing as faith the pride that leads us to think much about ourselves and much of ourselves. Wow. He understands what's going on in the church today. The Laodicean church would say, hey, they were, we're just simply protecting ourselves. We're just simply making our way in the world. What's the problem with being self-sufficient and self-reliant? Isn't that what we're called to do? But Jesus reveals what they really were protecting themselves from. And they were protecting themselves from facing the truth that they had lost themselves as Christians to get to this very place. And it's not worth it. Not worth it at all. And so in verse 14, Jesus says, he calls himself the faithful and true witness and because of that, and because he loves us too much to allow us to live in this self-deceit, he says what he does. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Why? So that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and your shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, come to me. I give you, I will give you wealth that matters. I will give you honor and glory that can never be taken away. I will give you sight to help you truly see. And friends, just so you know that this comes from a heart of love, look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So here's our last question. Here's our last point. Well, then, how do we go back? How do we repent? If this is you and you've excused your compromise and you called it success and you realize Christ is calling it idolatry, how do you regain what you've lost? How do you open the door that he's knocking on? How do you get true riches and true glory and true sight? Well, in order to do that, we must do two things. The first thing we have to do is be willing to admit what's real, as Tillich would have said in The Courage to Be, if you're compromising your Christian faith to gain success, then no matter what it looks like on the outside, Jesus says it makes him want to vomit you out. And friends, I want to put a point on this. Typically, when we think compromise, we tend to think of what David Wells called the, that list of infractions we typically think of when we call it sins, right? Uh, or, or maybe our drinking, or maybe our, our sexual habits, or maybe our, our language. And yes, those are all things that probably you want to rein in and submit to the biblical teaching. But that's not the compromise that, that, that we're most likely to engage in. The compromise we're most likely to engage in is putting our interests above his interests. About being worried about protecting ourselves, not proclaiming the kingdom. That's the compromise that is so subtle, so diabolical. And so dangerous for all of us. It's easy to know there are certain things we shouldn't do 
But it's so hard to realize when we put self-interest above God's interest because by and large, our entire culture has done that. Right? So the first thing is, have the courage to be, to admit, maybe I have certain successes. And it's not just success. Please don't just think it's business success. It can be approval, accomplishment, whatever it is. Maybe you think, I have those things, but in order to get those things, I've made some big compromises. I put my interests above God's interests and recognize it for what it is. It's a form of idolatry. So that's number one, recognize, admit the problem, right? Have the courage to face the reality. Second, realize that you cannot do this on your own. Realize that you are needy. That Laodicean church felt that they had, they needed nothing. We have to own that we need everything. Let me give you some good news. Jesus is the only individual I know that the more needy you are, the more he actually likes you. Right? He's the only person that the more you move to him with your neediness, the more he moves to you. And we're chuckling because we know the more needy we are, people tend to start going, whoa, you are needy, and we back away. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You recognize you're needy? That's good because I can meet that need realize friends that you cannot do this on your own you need everything because the drive to protect yourself is just way too strong whether it's you're protecting yourself by making sure your financials your finances are in place or protecting yourself by making sure you're as popular as you want to be or protecting yourself in other ways realize that that drive is way too strong for you to overcome on your own And like the Laodiceans, you will look to the things of this world to protect you from the things of this world. But Jesus can change you. The question is how? Well, he changes us by remaking you. What do I mean by that? See, the Laodiceans, they were so far gone. They were even more far gone than the church of Sardis. Remember the church of Sardis who had the reputation of being alive, but Jesus says, but you're actually dead. The Laodiceans were even worse than that because in Sardis, Jesus even makes the point, but there are a few of you that still have hope. Nothing of the sort in Laodicea. He says nothing. They need a complete overhaul, which is why Christ says, calls himself in verse 14, the beginning of God's creation. You see that right there? And so I just want to point out to you, contrary to what Jehovah Witnesses will teach you or what Mormons will say, this verse does not prove that Jesus is a created being. Right? I've had people say, see, it's, it's Jesus. He's the beginning of God's creation, so he can't be God. They misunderstand Scripture. Remember, Scripture always interprets Scripture. And I taught you when we went chapter 1 that we have this amazing vision of the risen Christ and, and, and all these things that describe him in every letter subsequent. He's alluding to something in, in, the, in that vision in chapter 1 that that church needs to hear. Remember that. So go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Just one page over. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So there it is. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. What Jesus is referring to here back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, is the new creation. He is the beginning of God's new creation, the recreation of all things. He is the first fruits of God's redemptive act to make all things new. Jesus in his resurrection is the beginning of hope for a new humanity that all who have faith in him can partake of. That's what it means. 
And the Laodiceans had forgotten that, even though they had read that in the letter to the Colossians. So let's, let's look at that. Go to, keep your finger in Revelation 3. I want you to go to the book of Colossians. It's right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 15. So keep in mind, the Laodiceans would have read this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, going back to that reality, the first fruits of God's creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So how exactly does Christ remake us? I want you to go back to Revelation. How exactly does Christ remake us? He, does, he remakes us by dying for us. Look back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, when he talks about him being the firstborn of all creation, Right? Firstborn of the dead and ruler of the kings on earth. Look at the next prepositional phrase. To him who loves us, and here it is, and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Two things to point out here. When it says he freed us from our sins, don't go back to thinking those little infractions, the little, what, what did David Wells call them? The, the, the small gnats, right? Think about the camel of self. When he freed us from our sins, don't think about the fact that he, he changed your potty mouth, okay? Don't think about the fact that he stopped your porn habit, right? Don't think about the fact that he, that he does those things, although those are good things. But what he freed you from was the sin underneath all the sins that leads to all those other things. And that is the desire to put yourself first above all else. That's what it means when he says he has freed us from our sins. He freed us from ourselves, the sin of the camel of the self. And how did he do this? Well, it's right there in the prepositional phrase in the Revelation 1.5. Who loves us? That's the motivation. The result is he freed us from our sins. How did he do this? The prepositional phrase, by his blood. How did he free us? from the slavery to ourselves, by his death, right? By his blood is, is, a, is, a, is a synonym for his death. How does Christ remake us? He remakes us, friends, by dying for us. Friends, when we look upon the cross, we never get past the gospel. When we look upon the cross and understand the only one who could truly protect himself, the only one who truly needed nothing that was completely self-sufficient, gave all that up. Matthew is it 20, 26, 35? It's, it's, it's there. Jesus says, I could call down a legion of angels. We'll put an end to this charade right now. But he doesn't. John 14 says, I'm the way, truth, I'm life. John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He doesn't need anything. The only one who could truly protect himself, the only one that was completely self-sufficient, did not protect himself, did not grasp onto his life, went to the cross. Why? so that you and I could always know the perfect, loving protection of a heavenly Father, so you and I could understand and, and be gifted eternal life. And he gave all that up so we could have it. Friends, when you really get that, when you really get 
And, and, and I love, is it, oh man, I need to prepare more. I mean, not that I'm not prepared, but I think it's Matthew 26, where Jesus is in the garden. And I love the, the, the reality, we get a sneak peek, where he goes to the Father and says, if there's another way we can pull this off, take this cup from me. What's happening there? He's not saying, oh yeah, the cross, I'm looking forward to it because I've got this plan of redemption and that's what I'm going to do. He's saying, if there's any other way, if there's another way, than me uh, uh, exposing myself to this, let's do it. What happened? He says, well, not my will be done, but your will be done. There was no other way. He could have protected himself, but he chose not to. When you get that's what he did for you and I, so you could have the guarantee that a heavenly father would luck out for your interests, right? And if you, if you were blessed to have a good father, right, or if you were trying to be a good father, you know how much you love your children. You would take the flesh off your bones for them. But you also know sometimes things are, difficult things are good for them. You're going to let them go through that. It's not because you don't love them, but because you know what you want for them. If you get that that's how your Heavenly Father feels for you, man, you're undone. You don't feel like you have to protect yourself all the time because you can rest in His protection. When you realize what the Bible teaches, and we'll conclude with this, in Romans chapter 8, 32, when Paul writes, if God is willing to give us His own Son, don't you realize He'll give you anything? I mean, think about that. If God, I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 8, 32. If God is willing to give up his only son for you, there's nothing he's not willing to give you. But what he won't give you is give you up to your self-sufficiency. And what he won't give you is he won't give you up to your self-deceit because he loves you too much. And he's not going to stop knocking on that door. Won't you let him in? Let's pray. Father, we, right now, if there are areas of our lives where we have compromised and we have spun it in our mind's eye that it was rational, it was justified in some reason, we needed to do this, we pray, Lord, in your mercy, you'd help us to see that, that what we've given ourselves into is an idolatry of the self. Father, th th this is such nuanced work, so Holy Spirit, would you just, and, and everyone here, do that work? That we would be willing, as, as we reflect on these seven churches, to, to wake up and realize, where are we? And maybe we've, we've called it success, but really, it's just been compromised with idolatry, and you're calling us out. Lord, I pray that if you're doing that work in anyone's heart, that, that you would be relentless because of your great love for us, and that we would turn from our sin, recognizing you are our great provider, you are our great protector that you have called us to something much larger than the horizon of our own lives. Father, we pray that we would be Christians, we would be a church that leave a legacy, or not, not a legacy of our material successes, but of a people who were faithful to the call you placed upon us, because that's the only thing that matters, Lord, because that's what matters. As we celebrate 50 years of your faithfulness to us, Lord, we want to return in like kind, but we recognize we cannot be faithful on our own. We are too wayward. We are too sinful. We cry out. We have needs, and we need you to meet those needs. Make us faithful to you as you have always been faithful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.